You know that passage that you're quoting from in Acts 20? He says, I'm innocent of the blood of all men because I did not shrink back from declaring the full counsel of God to you. His clear implication is that he would be guilty of the blood of some men if he had shrunk back. (laughs) And that's a troubling thought. It's not distinct from the word of the Lord to Ezekiel when he said, if you see the trouble coming and sound the alarm, their blood is on their hands, but if you do not, their blood is on your hands. But it's a troubling thought to to consider that I might be responsible for someone missing out. And I think that Paul is definitely living with that responsibility. Elsewhere in another book he said that I I am under obligation, I am under compulsion to preach the gospel. Woe Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He felt like he had surrendered his life to a conveyor belt of obedience and he was no longer holding the switch. He just had to step into God's will and it was going to take its own course. Amen. And I I do, I feel like we're not going to come into that place of total reconciliation with surrender. (laughs) We're not going to be okay with surrender until we contemplate the eternal consequences of if we do and if we don't. We can say, well, Lord, you'll find somebody else. And maybe he will. But Paul felt that he personally would have been guilty of the blood of those men if he had shrunk back from declaring the full counsel of God to them. There's only one word that I looked up before the meeting, Brother Nathan, and it was the word urgency. Would you recap what you said about that? It was the Amplified version, 2 Timothy 4 and 2, where he says, preach the word, and the King James says the instant, in season and out of season, but the Amplified, I looked it up this morning, and it says, keep your sense of urgency. Stand by, be at hand. Keep your sense of urgency. I guess if there was a tagline to anything I feel today, that would be it. There's only one word I looked up before the meeting, and it was the word urgency. I'm just going to not hide my lead. I'm going to tell you what I feel. (laughs) There's two kinds of authority. The authority of man that is based in opinion or based in conclusions or based in peer pressure or based often in fear. Or there's the authority of God that is based in two things. Conviction and loving urgency. If we want to apprehend the authority of God, which is to say the power of God, then we've got to shift out of opinions, out of fears, out of conclusions, and we've got to get ourselves into a place where we're acting by conviction and loving urgency. I was making some notes and I wrote down what I thought urgency meant and then I went and looked it up in the dictionary and they used almost verbatim the same definition. 
urgency, an accurate appraisal of importance or danger that produces zealous and timely action. So many efforts in the kingdom of God are powerless. They are feckless. They are partial. They are anemic. They do not have impact. They do not affect change. And it's because they lack urgency. But what God is already showing us this morning is that when obedience is coupled with urgency, it's going to be effective. If you think it's a good idea to share your heart with some people in Asia, well then that's going to kind of spill out like a dripping faucet. And sometimes it's going to be there and sometimes it's not going to be there. But when that obligation is pressurized by an urgency that is an accurate appraisal both of their condition and of your obligation, suddenly that same encounter is going to have power behind it. There is going to be a sense that something needs to be conveyed. Something needs to be done. And it's going to totally transform your delivery. I feel a sense today that there is a truth that we already know abstractly. Many of us know it concretely and immediately. But there's something on my heart and I feel such an urgency to download it today. I don't feel like it's an option. It's not an option for you to get it and it's not an option for me to share it. I've got to do it. I'm under compulsion. I'm guilty if I don't do it. Your failures are my fault if I'm not effective at it. That's how I feel. We can see urgency and the authority of urgency in a parent's treatment of their child. Oftentimes, a child will come in and say something cocky or smart aleck, and a parent will know that it's wrong, and they'll kind of drag themselves through the motions of correcting that child. But you don't feel much heart in it. You don't feel much indignation or emotion in it. But then imagine that that child comes in, the same child and the same parent, and, and he's kind of lazily spinning some keys in his hands and looking around, noticing wall sockets, puts one key forward and starts making his way over there. Maybe the parent is busy. Maybe they're tapping on their iPad. Maybe the parent is chatting on the phone. Maybe the parent is stirring spaghetti sauce or cream gravy that's about to scorch. But there's nothing in the whole world that's going to stop that parent. They are going to be activated. They are going to be immediate. They are going to be very clear and decisive in rescuing that child from the danger that they are haphazardly proceeding toward. The only difference is the parent does not believe in the danger of the bad attitude, but they can recognize the danger of the wall socket encounter. I'm trying to be a little bit oblique because, you know, we got little ones here. Do you see the difference? 
urgency on the one side and conclusions on the other side. The same is, can be illustrated with conviction. You know, a parent, there are going to be certain matters that rise to the level of conviction. And they're going to activate all their persuasion when they know that their child's future is on the line. For parents of the world, it might be about dropping out of college. It might be about quitting a sports team. For parents in the kingdom, hopefully it'll be about better things. Maybe egregious mistakes. Maybe squandering or wasting their life. But the parent, at some point or another, is going to get some kind of sense of indignation attached to conviction. And they're going to speak in a way, Son, you can't do that. Honey, that's going to ruin your life. The problem is all the areas in our lives where we operate without conviction and without urgency. I would submit that if we could identify those areas and get rid of them, we would become people of faith. We would become people of consequence. We would begin to affect the change that we want in our lives. In the broadest sense, we are involved in a competition between God and the devil, a cosmic tug-of-war. And at the core of that conflict is what kind of authority is going to rule the earth. The authority of God's fatherhood or the authority of coercion and brute force. And the sad thing is, is the devil doesn't offer coercion and brute force. He offers freedom and autonomy. But it's really just to seduce people into the coercion of brute force. Thank you, Jesus. When Satan came to the garden, he didn't say, Hey, guys, I want to hold you in bondage all your lifetime through the fear of death. Why don't you take a bite? Is that what he said? Hey, guys, good to meet you. I'm the king of terror. I'm the monarch of the children of pride. I'm that billy goat in hell that is always enlarging itself. Is that what he said? No. All those things are what the Bible calls him, but he didn't say anything about himself. He just took on the role of questioning authority, getting them to question whether they could trust God, whether they could trust each other. Amen. And then he just threw out some paths to freedom, paths to empowerment, to wisdom and enlightenment, and like so many turkeys, they followed him. We follow him. I follow him. We all do it. In other words, he never sells us slavery in the name of slavery. He sells us slavery in the name of freedom. Isn't that what Peter says about those who are enslaved to corruption? How does he say that they seduce you? By promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves to corruption. So the greatest enslavement the world has ever known comes in the name of, a, of freedom. It's a paradox that Paul tells us that the age of the Antichrist is going to be defined by a kind of release, a kind of loosing. Wouldn't you agree that the Antichrist has to be the very paragon of tyranny? Won't the Antichrist be the ultimate expression of totalitarianism and tyranny? 
And yet Paul tells us that he's not going to even show up until hindrances are removed and a release comes. So there's always going to be this paradox that the clueless never discern where slavery is offered in the name of freedom. Thank you, Jesus. And one side offers submission overtly, transparently, says you just need to submit. You've got a wrong kind of nature at work inside of you and you need to come under submission to the love of God as fatherhood. And the other says, oh no, you don't need to submit. You need to be free. And it says that in order to enslave you. But the kingdom fails or succeeds based on fatherhood. That's how the kingdom runs. We don't have a government. We don't have an army. We don't have a bureaucracy. We don't have anything that makes a government a government in this world. Now the Lord is the spirit. And we have the truth. And we have each other. We have love. We have accountability. We have the compulsion of truth and love. That's it. That's it. You can't just walk out on the requirements of the U.S. government, but you can walk out on these. You can decide to never come through those doors again, and we'll miss you. We may cry for you, but we can't hold you. You're only here because you said, I want to take my old wretched man and put him to death and make him a slave, and I want a new man to become free and find his stride and his life in God. You're here because you want to be here. There are no edicts from on high. We can pass out recommendations and guidelines, but at the end of the day, you're going to do what you got to do. And if you don't, the worst we can say is you can't be here, but you can exercise your freedom to be anywhere you want to be, but you can't be here. That's the fatherhood of God. And so if the devil wants to make a mockery out of the kingdom of God, he just needs to change what we understand fatherhood is. He just needs to mock fatherhood, obscure fatherhood, destroy fatherhood. How many of you have listened to the talk that I've given the last two years at the fair on uh, City on a Hill? Anybody listen to that? You should listen to the statistics, if nothing else. The common denominator between misery in our culture is between all kinds of dysfunctional, especially youth misery in our culture, the common denominator is the absence of fatherhood. If you don't have a father in your life, you're nine times more likely to drop out of school. You're ten times more likely to be incarcerated as a youth. You're 20 times more likely to abuse drugs, to use a knife in a fight. The statistics are appalling. Die a violent death. Nine-tenths of those youth who are in institutions for addiction are from fatherless homes. Nine-tenths. So what, do, what does that tell us? That the devil hates fatherhood. That's what that tells us. And if you love the world and the praises of the world, then you're not going to be a father. You're not going to be able to find that love of God that would compel you to act with conviction and urgency in the realm where God has made you responsible. 
There are two kinds of fatherhood. More than that, but let's talk about two kinds. One connects with the heart of the person under their care. And it is, it's an emotional connection. It's a spiritual connection. And the other treats the person under their care more like an animal, like a dog. They merely observe the behavior of the one under their care. And the one is interested in maintaining a relationship. And they are very alert to what facilitates or interrupts the promise of relationship. And the other is very interested, or only interested, I should say, in behavioral compliance. The first is aware of behavior because they see it as a lens for viewing attitudinal issues. The other is content with behavioral compliance. Parents who manage and disciple their children for behavioral compliance never will feel what Elisha felt when his servant, in the capacity of a son, went out and chased after Naaman and disobeyed his master. Do you remember that when he came back, Elisha asked him, where have you been? Oh, nowhere. And what did Elisha say to him? Did not my heart go with you when you chased after the man? So this is a certain kind of fatherhood. It's connected in the spirit. It feels something for this child that runs deeper than mere human affection, that runs deeper than the requirement to maintain behavioral compliance. This man is somehow invisibly tied to this youth. And the youth is unable to go in certain places or incline certain directions without his father feeling something. Brothers and sisters, this is what the kingdom of God looks like on its basic starting point level. It looks like connections between sons and fathers where there's a feeling between each other. Now, you can start feeling sorry for yourself right now and say, I didn't have a dad like that. And, and then I'd have to remind you that the greatest fathers in our experience came from fatherless homes. Brother Howard is from a fatherless home. Brother Blair was from a fatherless home. No, no, no. If you have come from a fatherless home, an absentee father, or without a father altogether, then God has just put an added appreciation and keen respect and awareness in your heart so that you would recognize the father of fathers, the father of lights, and follow him. Thank you, Jesus. He is a father to the fatherless. Is it a coincidence that if you look at some of the leading men of this church who have championed fatherhood more than anyone else? Is it a coincidence that they came from broken families? No, it is not. No. No. That brokenness could have brought self-pity, but instead it brought appreciation. 
It brought a hunger. It brought a dissatisfaction for anything but God's pattern and way. In short, it gave birth to a miracle. My dad carried the pain of his father's suicide with him unto his grave. But did it make him someone unable to be a father? No! No, it didn't. Why is that? Why is that? Because he knew where all fatherhood was sourced. Amen. I bow my knees before the Father from whom all the families in heaven and on earth derive their name. And that's what we got to do today. We got to say, God, I want to come into my place in the kingdom. I want to understand what it means to be a father and to receive the fathering of God. There's nothing we can do to change the church faster. Every major breakdown in the church is a breakdown of fatherhood. We're not saying that there aren't problems. We're saying the solution is the fatherhood of God. And that solution may be painful, it may be pleasant, but it's always going to come from fatherhood. Now, our word for father has roots in two different languages. One is Latin and one is, what is it? Ancient Aramaic Hebrew? And the Latin uh, word for father is pater. And what is pater? What's the root of that? What other word do we get from that same word? Pattern. And, and, and if we go to the ancient Aramaic Hebrew, it's Abba, or it comes from Abu. And what does Abu mean? To make a decision. So the most ancient words for father, pater or Abu, mean on the one hand pattern giver and on the other hand decision maker. At the heart of the kingdom of God is fatherhood. And at the heart of fatherhood is patterns and decisions. If you're someone who hates decisions, please come to repentance. If you're someone who wants to shirk the decision onto someone else, God invites you to come to repentance for your childish, womanly spirit. If you're someone who acts merely from your head and not your heart, God wants you to start managing for the relationship and not just the behavior. You see, parents, mothers and fathers who manage merely for behavior, they create manipulators. They create hypocrites. They say to the child, just keep up the right appearances with me. But a parent who wants to go deeper and discern in the spirit what stands behind comments that indicate attitudes, that parent is saying to the child, God looks on the heart. So when you think in terms of what you can tolerate from Johnny, you're completely missing the point. When you're talking in terms of what doesn't bother you, you're completely missing the point. You see, the devil wants to make Johnny the slave, the hapless, hopeless slave of his carnal nature. He wants Johnny to be the slave of his anger in the future and be violent. He wants Johnny to be the slave 
of his avarice and greed and be competitive. He wants Johnny to be the fearful slave of other people's opinions and conform to the patterns of this world. That's what the devil wants. He wants us to be the slaves of our carnal natures. And when a a parent's task is to establish a precedent with a toddler all the way through adolescence that no, because of fatherhood, because of mom and dad, you don't have to be the slave of your strongest, worst instincts. How does Jude describe someone who lives by their impulses? He says these are creatures of instinct, brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed. So when I teach my two-year-old, when I more than teach, when I train my two-year-old, that when they're having a wall-eyed fit and I walk into the room and say, turn it off. I am establishing a precedent in that child's mind. They won't even know where it came from, but I am establishing a precedent that when they're 20 years old and about to bust a gusset, lose it, because something has not gone their way, they're going to know God in heaven can tell me to turn it off and I don't have to be the slave of this instinct and impulse. If a parent negates that responsibility, if all they're looking for is peaceful coexistence, and peaceful is a stretch, but, you know, survival coexistence with this creature, then they're not going to have that burden where every time they see that dominant flesh kick into gear, no, I have got to help Johnny know that he does not have to be the slave of that emotion, of that instinct, of that impulse, of that cruel and savage master, as Shakespeare called it, of that carnal nature. You say, well, but that's not bringing Johnny to repentance. I know. I know. It's establishing a precedent for repentance. Johnny doesn't need to come to repentance until he's reached the age of accountability. So Johnny is entirely your responsibility. You are to blame for his behavior. Entirely. He's your charge. And so you're establishing that right now in your entirely submitted state, you don't have to be that ugly kind of person. And then when he gets to the age of an adult and he's free, and you can no longer exert that dominion over him, then he's going to ask himself, can God help me bring this under control? And he's going to remember subconsciously, yes, indeed. The same thing that was happening when I sat in the high chair and pitched my hissy fit, I can do the same thing right now, because really, that's all it is. It's all different expressions. I mean, you go on and look at the news from time to time, and I just see overgrown babies slamming their cups down on the high chair tray. I mean, seriously, they're wall-eyed babies. And, and it's only because nobody gave them the service of knowing they didn't have to be a slave to that. And that's a task that only a parent can do. We saw recently a leading figure in our times destroy his office and his chance to be president 
just through his inability to be more mannerly. I mean that. I have a lot of respect for him. He did a lot of good things and a lot of bad things. But at the end of the day, he activated hatred in a nation because of his obnoxious, impetuous, instinctive manner. The future of a nation hinged on the impetuosity, oftentimes the, the toddler impetuosity of an adult who was not afforded godly discipline from godly parents. And even though he was the messenger of liberty on many accounts and far superior to alternatives, most would agree, um, he, the, the course of history hinged on his inability to control his mouth. Can we agree with that? So one would have to ask themselves, what would have been more critical to the future of a nation than a mother instilling in a child the proper dose of respect and restraint? You say, well, she didn't know that that child was going to become president. But you don't know what your child's going to become. Maybe your child is the next Moses. Maybe he's the next John the Baptist. Maybe he's the next Paul. And maybe the kingdom can't advance because parents won't see the urgency of what's at stake. You need to start discerning attitudes and the tyranny of the carnal nature, not just behavioral conformity. You need to let your heart go with them. And ask yourself, oh, I can tolerate that in my three-year-old or my five-year-old or my six-year-old. But what does that look like when it's full-grown? You want to transform your parenting? You need to get more serious about sin. You need to recognize sin in its infant stages. The Bible tells us that desire, when it is conceived brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. The difference between an inconsistent, haphazard, ineffectual parent and a godly, fruitful parent is that the godly, fruitful parent can see that insolence in the eye and attitude of their eight-year-old and address it with urgency, whereas the other cannot. What I'm getting at is the godly parent does not look at sin as something that, oh, everybody has it. They look at sin as coming from a dangerous nature that needs to be taught early on that it can be controlled and brought under dominion. So if you look, if you see that insolent look in, in, in the eye or that insolent tone and you fast forward, you're able to project what does this look like when it's full grown, then when it happens with a nine-year-old, you are not able to respond with either manufactured seriousness or indifference. You see a child approaching a light socket with a key in his hand, and something troubles you, and you say, son, we need to talk. Now, the methods that you deploy to get his attention 
may vary, and that's up to the parent. I don't really think that methods are the problem. I think your heart is the problem. I don't think you have enough regard for this man or this child. I don't think you have enough expectation for the kingdom. And I don't think you have enough love and regard for his soul. Why did Jesus respond to Peter when Peter said, I don't want you to die. You're my best friend. That's the the message translation. But, you know, Jesus was saying he was going to die. And his best friend comes along and says, Lord, this will not be. Takes him aside. And he really says something that's quite understandable. Right? Wouldn't you agree? And why did Jesus say, get thou behind me, Satan. You love the things that be of man rather than the things that be of God. Why did Jesus do that? Because he wasn't trying to manage the behaviors. He was trying to discern the heart. He was trying to manage the relationship. And he wasn't afraid to see something ugly behind a very innocuous, even kind-sounding gesture. Are you afraid of seeing what's behind the behavior? Or are you just too lazy to deal with it consistently? Do you avoid it subconsciously because you don't want to peer into it and see something ugly in your child? Well, I got news. There's something ugly inside of every one of us. And you can wait until that's full grown to try to deal with it. Or you can deal with it now and establish a precedent. No, I can't promise that that child's going to live for God. But I can promise he's going to know what the fathering love of God feels like. And I can promise that's his best chance of trusting the Lord Jesus when the time of repentance comes. I think my dad oftentimes dealt with our problems in attitude form so he never had to deal with the explosive behaviors. He was not afraid to see the devil in our innocuous comments. He felt it was his duty. And it was. Because it is the duty of a father to let their heart go with Gehazi and to stop them from destroying themselves. Now somebody will say, what about love? Well, that's assumed. That's assumed. You can't have fatherhood that is not defined as love I'm describing the hard part of love but it is assumed that there is so much affection there is so much fondness there is so much laughter and sweetness and shared moments and stories and talks and walks and life I'm just focusing on the part that I think all loving dads have a hard time with if they're anything like me But if you don't have the love, if you don't have the affection, if you don't have the warmth, oh my goodness. Amen. Are you even saved? I don't think you are. This is how we know we've passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. If you can't even love your kids, I don't know what level of damnation you're at. But you need to come to repentance. I'm not joking. You need to get on your face 
And go talk to somebody and say something is wretchedly, tragically, terrifyingly wrong with me. I don't have love in my heart for my family. You have fallen under the category of being past natural affection, which is a tragic category. But God will give you that love if you'll humble yourself because good news, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. When he indicted the Laodicean church with losing their first love, or no, it was the Ephesus church, wasn't it? With losing their first love, he gave them the remedy. He said, therefore, repent. As if a loss of love could be fixed by breaking your heart and coming to repentance for your ugly, rebellious nature against God and taking that off the throne. So there's hope regardless. But my emphasis today is not on the love. That should go without saying, and if it doesn't, we need to talk. But my, my emphasis is not so much on the love. My emphasis is on the difficulty, on the hard task that love asks you to perform. God says, this child has an insolence. This child has a pride. This child has a willfulness, a stubbornness. This child has a vanity. And all these things the world is just waiting to destroy. This child's heart's going to be broken Their hopes are going to be dashed. Relationships are going to be shattered. The world is going to be awfully brutal on this nature, on this godlike nature that this child is trying to cultivate inside of himself. But God has placed the task of restraining that ugliness in the hands of the two people who love him more than anyone in the world. Somebody else will knock the chip off his shoulder if you don't. But how much harder it will be on the child. Someone else will deal with him. The inexorable crowbar of human events is going to crush him and pry him loose from his illusions. It may happen in a nursing home, but someday he's going to be completely disillusioned. Will it be the same as it could have been if done by the people who loved him more than anyone in the world? What father is there who does not discipline his son? At the heart of fatherhood is the willingness to discipline. Not out of hatred, but out of love. Out of saying to your son, son, you can't take that into the world. Not only is it going to harm your soul, but it's going to make your way so difficult. Anyone who's a father in this room knows what I'm talking about. But the world hates that kind of expression of authority. They have mocked it. They have shackled it. They have obscured it. They have have made people terrified of it when it's the only kind of authority we shouldn't be terrified of. It's the only kind rooted in love and totally voluntary. So we got to shift. And we got to ask God to show us that we are not training to manage their behavior. We are training to break their willfulness without breaking their spirit. Break their willfulness and bring them into submission to their parents. When a child is still an adolescent, his parents are as God to him. What? Yeah, that's exactly what I meant. In Matthew 19, he said, You forsake the commandments of God for your traditions. And he says, You honor me 
with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Can we agree that Jesus is talking about honoring and approaching God in this equation? And then he tells us how they honor him with lips, but without heart. He says, for Moses says to honor your parents and you let people off the hook. Do you see that the parent is as God to the child? When God was leading the children out of, the, out of, out of Egypt into Canaan, he tells Aaron, Moses will be as God to you. <laughs> There's some sense in which Aaron didn't pretend that Moses was a God, but he looked at Moses as a channel of God's grace of God's leading and instruction in his life. Before a child has a developed conscience or the ability to come to repentance and receive a new nature, their parents are their external conscience. <laughs> when parents are absent, conscience are not there. Conscience is absent as well. Amen? But the task of the parent is not to teach the child to be a manipulator. That's what behavioral management fosters. Do you see that? Why does behavioral management foster manipulation from the part of the child? Because they say, I've just got to read mom's mood. I've just got to see if she's in a, in a mood for me to behave this way today. Uh-oh, she's in the wrong mood. Better be careful. But attitudinal management says, I've got to watch my heart because God sees the heart when nobody else does. What are we managing for? I want to give you two scriptures from the Apostle Paul and consider the paradox in these two scriptures. Paul says about himself, concerning the law, I was blameless. Now skip over a couple pages and listen to him say this. I, who was chief or worst among sinners... God has made known this mercy. So he calls himself blameless in accordance to the law and worst among sinners. What, what's gone wrong? This is someone who has been brought up under behavioral management. This is not someone who has been brought up with someone questioning their thoughts, their motives, their attitudes, their heart. This is someone who's just learned to keep things right, who's learned to live in the lines, but it didn't do anything to root out sin. I am a Pharisee. I was a Pharisee among Pharisees. I was blameless according to the law, and I was the worst of sinners. <laughs> There's a parenting style that is just meticulous about etiquette. And don't infer from this that I don't think etiquette matters. My mom would not forgive me if I inferred that. Trust me, it matters. Manners matter. But that's not the goal. That's merely a lens to perceive the goal through. Do you understand? So there's a parenting style that really focuses on the externals to an, a remarkable degree. And I'm all for keeping that child orderly. I'm all for yes sir, yet no ma'am, yes ma'am. I'm all for that. I'm all for attentiveness, looking at the parent, engagement. I'm all for every bit of that. But the main thing that we got to be after 
is a perception of that child's attitude and heart. Otherwise, we'll, 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 we'll make these obsequious, mannerly, hmm, and, and they're just manipulating us. Yes, sir, yes, sir. I'll, I'll bring it right to you. And inside is dead men's bones. Inside is every vile contempt and hatred toward authority imaginable. Even a dog will learn to stay in the lines, but you haven't changed that dog's nature. I, I, I can train a dog to never come into my presence without sitting and behaving properly. But it's an act. There's nothing pure or proper about that canine. And when I look the other way, they're digging through the garbage, eating the old meat packages. That's behavioral management. And some of us parents are content with that. The goal is to encounter the willfulness of the carnal nature and bring it under overt submission to the parent. Fathers and husbands and mothers will come and say, how do I minister to those under my care? I don't feel it. They don't feel it. How do I minister to those under my care? Well, you've got to have a clear picture of God's plan, of His vision. And you've got to have a clear picture of the lethal nature of sin, the corrosive nature of sin. And then you've got to have an accurate assessment of where things are at. And if you would have those three things, something would change in your urgency. I felt urgency when my parents would minister to me. I felt that they had perceived something in me that was dangerous to my survival, that was threatening my salvation. Do you think Peter felt something urgent from, from Jesus? Do you feel like Peter felt some urgency from the Lord Jesus when he spun around and said, Get thou behind me, Satan. You love the things that be of man rather than the things that be of God. You can't deny that Jesus had high hopes for this man. Just a handful of verses earlier, he just gave him the keys to the kingdom. He just said, blessed are you, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But his hopes were so high, and his love was so deep, that when Peter started to wobble back into that mess, that mire of fleshly aspirations and thinking, Jesus was startled and troubled and unable to hold back that rebuke that set the man free. Some of you, you pride yourself in how mechanical you can be and say that you're keeping your cool. Well, you don't need to be explosive. You don't need to be given to wrath. But you need to have feeling in what you say. Studies show that teachers are categorically ineffective until they teach a subject that they feel passionately about. I hope I'm not categorically ineffective today because I feel passionately about it. You can't feel passionately about something. Well, 
It says in the building Christian character. Let's see. That is a resource that ought to equip you, that ought to inform you, that ought to be a pattern for you. But it's not mechanical. You've got to have an accurate sense of what God has in store. I wonder what John Mark's mother was doing when Paul said, I can't work with this guy. Some of you parents, you don't have a high enough regard for what God has made your children to be. There's only about 1,200 of us in this location. Do you glimpse the magnitude of the purpose we are called to? I don't want to disciple your children with childish discipleship. I want to disciple adults. But some are coming and they're barely out of diapers spiritually and they're old enough to get married. Where is the burden? I'm not talking about being hard on someone. And God help you if you just start trying to manage them to protect your image. Thank you, Jesus. This isn't about your image. This is about the purpose of God. This is about their eternal soul. You say, well, I don't, I don't, know, I don't know what I think about this. What does Proverbs say? He who spares discipline hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. You see something lethal in your son's hand, and you, you act indifferent, you act cool, calm, and collected, you hate that person. You see a child take strychnine to their lips, are you going to maintain your really terrific images? Oh, honey dear, I would rather if, I tell you what, mommy just wants you to, please, sweetheart, would you give mommy the strychnine? Oh, any decent soul in the world would know you were a loveless hack. But if you dove across the room and screeched and said, don't touch that, everybody would know exactly what was going on. You love that kid more than your ridiculous image. Amen. And when you speak about sin, oh, honey, dear, sweet, this and that, give me a break. You're just projecting your image. No, you can't be hard. No, you can't be angry in the flesh. But you can convey conviction if you've got the conviction in your soul. And you don't categorize and chalk up whole categories of behavior as, oh, it's just being kids. How, how has that served our culture, that mindset? We're pretty much happy with that, where that mindset has landed us. I'm not. I think it's appalling. Why does the Bible say, do not spare the rod, discipline your son, and save his soul from hell? Is the Bible teaching justification by spanking? Is it teaching redemption by spanking? Most assuredly not. What is it teaching? Why does it attach eternal destiny to child training? How is that even possible? Only if you are establishing something in a child when he's very small, that later helps him believe that he can overcome what would otherwise take him to hell. Do you understand? 
And I'm not here to promote one method of child training over the other. I don't need to do that because you've all got a Bible. I'm merely observing how strange it is that the Bible would say something like that. What does that indicate? It indicates that parents have to act with a view toward eternity. It also indicates that parents who cannot bring themselves to be effective in their discipline have lost their view of eternity. So our prayer and our commitment today and throughout this year is that we would receive and we would give the fatherhood of God, which is first and foremost God's love, but it is also God's authority. And the key is that we will repent of our actions that stem from indifference or complacency. And we will adopt, receive from God a proper dose of urgency and conviction. I never felt like my dad was telling me to do something because it was his opinion. I never felt like he was telling me to do something because it was inconvenient on him or convenient for him. I always felt that it was based on the word of God and that there was an, a submission that he had to God and that he was as submitted to God as I was. All authority is derivative. All of it has to come from above or in the world from compulsion, the threat of violence. So we've all got to be in a place of submission. Consistency is something everybody talks about with child training. When you're inconsistent, it just shows that the parent is exerting authority based on what's convenient and tolerable for them, not based on conviction, not based on the concern for this child's soul. Do you believe in your heart of hearts that your child training can affect your child's eternal destiny? No, I, I want to know. Do you believe that? Then how can you be indifferent? You say, but I don't want to hurt them. Oh, we all know. That's why God gave it to you to assume this most difficult task because he knows you'll do it with the most love and the most mercy and the most patience possible. But he also knows you better do it. Why are there not kids running around this room screaming? Why are there not toddlers dancing up and down the platform? There are hundreds of kids in this room. And they're all sitting well behaved. Some of them are smiling at me even now. I'm proud of you kids. We are proud of them and we're proud of their parents even more. But this isn't where it stops. We got a great parents of toddlers are not often great parents of adolescents. And, and great parents of adolescents sometimes are terrible parents of teenagers. We got to go from just training to then helping them see their carnal nature and restrain it to then helping them come to repentance and walk in it. But we've got to keep an eternal view all the way to the end because we're part of an eternal kingdom and we've got a great work to accomplish. 
Hallelujah. Can we prayerfully consider, brothers and sisters, how we're going to change our, our parenting and fatherhood in 2022? It's the single most important thing that we can do. There's nothing that will have a greater ramification throughout our whole church and our purpose. We don't even know the doors that are waiting to open until we can get ready. People get ready. There's a door already open, many doors. Amen. I want to walk through it fruitfully. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah.